The day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Today's guest is Bruce Smith, investigative journalist and author of D.B. Cooper and the FBI, a case study of America's only unsolved hijacking. He also runs The Mountain News, an online news magazine covering the greater Mount Rainier area. There's a D.B. Cooper section on his site where his articles can spark over a thousand comments from people in the Cooper vortex. Bruce has spent the last 12 years investigating all aspects of this case. His book, D.B. Cooper and the FBI, is incredibly thorough and a great read. If you don't have it already, you need to pick it up. There's a link to his book and his website in the show notes. I had a great time talking to Bruce. He's a really smart guy and he really knows the D.B. Cooper case. I hope you enjoy my interview with Bruce Smith. All right, Bruce, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Well, let's get started with how did you get sucked into the Cooper Vortex to begin with? I was a newspaper reporter for a local weekly out here, out in the woods in Eatonville, uh, that was known as the Dispatch. And I was hired in 2006 to be the reporter in the Graham, Washington area, which back in 2006, <clears throat> excuse me, with the housing bubble still bubbling, reaching boiling point, there was a lot of construction. And my editors, my bosses realized that this was where the money was going to be. There's a lot of construction. That meant there was going to be a lot of grocery stores. That meant we're going to sell a lot of newspapers and coupons and everything like that. And we're going to need someone to write the story of, of Graham where the money is. And so they hired me as a freelancer. And my boundary line was right at Thun Field, the northern boundary line from my coverage area. And in the newspaper business, there's a couple things that always get you in the newspaper. Car accidents, murders. If it bleeds, it leads. The next big thing is parades and car shows. And Thunfield was having a car show extravaganza along with a miniature kind of fly-in of private airplanes. So it was a combo deal. And that meant there was going to be a lot of good pictures. Mm -hmm. And that meant we're going to sell a lot of newspapers. So they said, go up and, and cover this car show, air show thingy. And also, too, it was a fundraiser for the local high school up there. So <laughs> it's a trifecta. <laughs> so I go up there, and this is, the, this is August of 2008. 
and I happened to see a plane that looks very familiar to me. And I realize it's a Fairchild 24. And I had built a model of it when I was a kid. In fact, it was the first balsa wood model plane that I ever built. And I'm now looking at my little model airplane in real life for the very first time. <laughs> and I'm just ooing and eyeing. It was perfectly restored. It even had a bud vase, a rose bud vase in the back seat. The Fairchild 24 was the Mercedes-Benz of its day back in the 1930s. It was like the Learjet for its time. Right. And so it was a high, it was a pricey airplane and it was well built. And as I'm ooing and aahing, this guy walks up and he says, you like my airplane? And I go, yeah, it's really cool. And I told him the story of building it as a kid and yada, yada, yada. And, and that was Ron Foreman. Oh, really? Yes. <clears throat> and it's a really hot day and he's showing me everything and I'm loving it but we are sweating like pigs and at one point he says let's get the hell out of the sun how about we sit in the shade under the starboard wing he's got these little lawn chairs just like we're sitting in right now we sit down he says you want an ice cold coke and I said you betcha he opens up a little igloo and there's plenty of ice and right neck and coca-cola and right next to it is this book that says D.B. Cooper, death by something, something, blah, blah, blah. Death by natural causes. Exactamente. And I go, Ron, you into D.B. Cooper? And he goes, hell yeah, I just wrote that book. Me and my wife published it that last week. And so we spent the last, the remainder of that day talking about Barb Dayton mm -hmm. and writing the book and D.B. Cooper. We left the plane. We left the sun. We went into his hangar and we just talked for the rest of the day. His wife got lost because she's, Ron loves to talk. And when he puts it into gear, Pat heads for the hills. <laughs> <laughs> so Ron and me, we're just blabbing away. And a couple things happened. Certainly I learned a lot about the Barb, Barb Dayton. I learned a lot about D.B. Cooper. But I learned even more about the FBI. Because Ron had a very harsh relationship with the FBI. And it was clear, certainly from his point of view, that he was mistreated, unappreciated, and disrespected by the FBI. They because of who Barb Dayton was. The whole, the whole package. Um, they, they wouldn't return phone calls. They didn't return emails. Um, but as you dig into the story, you find that there are certain elements of the FBI who did respond to the foremans and who really liked Barb Dayton. So, and, and for me, this was all fascinating because it was a glimpse into the FBI of how they really function. And as an investigative newspaper reporter, that's the story that I really wanted to hear more about. And Ron was very happy to tell me all about that and give me names, telephone numbers, email addresses, and timelines of who was screwing him over. <laughs> so I got the lowdown right out of the chute. So it was a very productive day for me. But my editors didn't want to hear anything about D.B. Cooper. Why not? It's a local story. 
doesn't sell newspapers. It's an old story. But what they did want to hear about was local authors write about D.B. Cooper. Local authors publish a book about D.B. Cooper. Local authors are being filmed by the National Geographic Channel about D.B. Cooper. So I covered the foreman story for the Dispatch newspaper. And that's when I began to really dig into the Cooper story. I went to Ariel to the annual party. Mm -hmm. I met the film crew from National Geographic. I began to learn how documentaries are actually manufactured, how, how they're actually created, that there is no such thing as a National Geographic film crew. It's a private organization, some company, some freelancing organization down in L.A. or New York City is hired by National Geographic or the History Channel, the Travel Channel. They, none, none of those guys have any of their own worker bees. Right. They just outsource it to other people. And so there are these hotshots that fly in and do under contract a, a show for some TV channel. So I learned a lot. And I just followed the foremans and the National Geographic film crew and talked to everybody and really just jumped in with both feet. I started going to the Drop Zone website in 2008 and received a very harsh lesson in the Cooper Vortex very quickly. I was, it had been around for three years already? Not, not even, no. Uh, it was just the... I caught... I caught the wave. Larry Carr, the case agent for D the D.B. Cooper case, mm -hmm. had started posting on the drop zone about seven or eight months before I showed up. So he was in full flame. And Snowman was there. And Sluggo was there. And Georgia were posting every 15 minutes. In fact, Larry Carr would be posting at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I posted back and I said, you can't sleep either, huh, Larry? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so D.B. Cooper, there was a, a revitalization, an emergence of tremendous interest in the D.B. Cooper case around 07 and 08. And I caught that wave. The foreman's introduced me to it but there was a lot more than just Ron and Pat Foreman and the Barb Dayton story and I learned a lot about the case and I learned how much I didn't know mm -hmm. so I got wise in very hard ways I had a bumpy road and Georgia just taught me a new one every other day Georgia Georgia yeah he is a poster oh Georgia yeah 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 okay and he's still he calls, he, he, by, him, by him, his own reckoning, he calls himself an adorable asshole. And that's as good a term as any other ones that I've heard. But I, I just call him a grumpy grandpa, you know, who is just antisocial. But <laughs> He's pretty cantankerous online. He is, he, and he, he hasn't changed the wit. He is just as nasty now as he was 10 years ago. <laughs> He is not mellowing, and he's not changing his medications either. So I, I, I noticed no behavioral changes in that fellow. <laughs> and so everybody makes their peace with Georgia. And the truth is, is that I have a dual relationship with Georgia. 
online, he busts my ass every opportunity that he does. He mocks me re relentlessly. But personally, he calls me up all the time. You know? Oh, that's pretty cool. And we have, a, we have a very collegial, very professional relationship, very productive relationship on the phone. And he's a major source of information that I write about in the book. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of Georgia in my book that I directly source, particularly he, in many ways, <clears throat> Georgia and I are colleagues because at the risk of tooting my own horn, I would say me and Georgia are the least fearful investigators, citizen, citizen sleuth investigators in the D.B. Cooper case. And what do you mean by least fearful? We go places, that, we, go, we go where no one else goes. You know, we, we explore the, uh, the hidden little corners of the case. And we'll, so, you know, I knocked on Tina Mucklow's front door, okay? I've heard that. Yes, okay. And, and just to finish that story, she said five words to me. And those five words were, you need to leave now. <laughs> that's the extent of my conversation <laughs> with the primary witness to the D.B. Cooper case. <laughs> but Georgia has contacted and spoken at length with the Ingram family, uh, with all the principals of the Ingram family. He knows he knows what happened to the money and the discovery down at Tina Barr. Uh, he's, talk, he's talked to all the FBI agents that were there. Um, his... His contacts in the FBI are more extensive, either professionally or personally, his family members in the FBI. Georgia has access beyond what I have and beyond, in some f in fashion, what anybody else has in the D.B. Cooper world. And that's one of the aspects of the D.B. Cooper, what I call the private investigation or the citizen investigation, which is really a new emergence. And we're seeing this in other places. Like we were just talking about the Golden State Killer right. and Michelle McNamara. What what has happened in the last week with with the arrest of the Golden State Killer and the revelations that Pat Oswalt's wife Michelle McNamara were instrumental in helping the Golden State Killer get captured by popularizing it, by making it a book, by blogging, by having websites, and being able to link all of the disparate in pieces of information because law enforcement too often is fractured and doesn't communicate with each other. And this is true in the FBI. You basic, the FBI and law enforcement does not function like you see on TV. It is highly compartmentalized. The FBI back in 9-11 admitted we don't connect the dots. We didn't connect the dots. Well, they didn't connect the dots in 9-11. They didn't connect the dots in the D.B. Cooper case. They didn't connect the dots in the Golden State Killer case. They, didn't, they, don't, they don't connect dots. The FBI is not built to connect dots. And no law enforcement agency is built to connect dots. There are occasionally a bright shining star. There aren't too many Olivia Bensons out there in the world who carry a badge. But there are one or two who can handle a lot of disparate information and see the big picture, who are motivated, who are committed to fairness and justice and common sense and doing the right thing as opposed to what's politically appropriate or what your bosses want or what DA wants or what the 
mayor wants or what the president wants or the director wants. And that those are realities that need to be faced. Political pressures on law enforcement are massive and they generally trump to use a phrase, a, a name that gets mentioned a lot these days. Though I have heard cops, and I agree, that the only crimes that get solved are the ones that the politicians want solved. And if they don't want it solved, it doesn't get solved. And I believe that to be true. And in general, the primary mission of law enforcement in my view, as an investigative journalist and as the author of the D.B. Cooper and the FBI, a case study of America's only unsolved skyjacking, that guy, my personal experience, is that the primary mission of law enforcement, including the FBI, is not to fight crime or catch criminals. It's to protect the wealthy and the powerful because that's where the money comes from to pay the salaries and the budgets and to keep the old the whole all the wheels spinning catching bad guys is is secondary and another primary mission of law enforcement is to tell good stories and they tell good stories by manipulating guys like me and possibly guys like you but having independent podcasts is an end runner around the control of the media that law enforcement has usually through corporate relationships. As everyone knows, media pre presents a slanted, biased news account. And they're usually always sanitized to make sure that they keep the cops happy, or at least the cops' bosses happy, which is usually the politicians. Right. And so, so, a, so a news story doesn't go out that is overly provocative or overly inflammatory or too, too deeply penetrating into the deeper secrets. So you think there is a higher power than the FBI that doesn't want the case solved? That didn't want the D.B. Cooper case solved or doesn't? I don't know. I don't know. Is there a higher power? Very possibly... Uh, J. Edgar Hoover may have received a phone call that night, you know, within an hour after D.B. Cooper jumped out of his airplane. D.B. Cooper may have been on the ground for 15 minutes, and J. Edgar Hoover is getting a phone call back in Washington, D.C. during a poker game or something like that. And it's like, uh, yo, uh, Jay, this is so-and-so over at the CIA. We've got something going on in Washington State, and we need you guys to... Go easy. <laughs> you know, it's po it's very possible something like that happened. Oh yeah. Um, and J. Ed J. Edgar and and other people. I think I think a lot of the conspiratorial plot lines that you see in the good TV shows like Homeland um, exist. I I think those dynamics are very real and have to be considered. How truthful are they? I don't know. How do they apply to the D.B. Cooper case? I don't know. But I'll tell you, I suspect, I suspect it because I see a lot of smoke. And where there's smoke, there's got to be fire somewhere. But I don't know. I don't see the flames, but I see the smoke and I smell it. I just don't know who set the fire 
and where the fire is actually burning. But And I know a lot of, I suspect that a local grunt level FBI agents have done good work. A bigger issue is how bureaucracies actually function. Like I said earlier, connecting the dots is not something that the FBI does well, or any bureaucracy. You know, Ford Motor Company may build you a good car, but they may not do a very good tune-up when you drive. If you drive up and your car's not running right, you know, it, it's like they only do certain things well. You know, and that's the same for the FBI and solving innovative creative, weird, one-of-a-kind crimes that involve multiple jurisdictions and present the FBI with new challenges that they never faced before, they don't handle that well. It's like being a new mom with a baby and nobody in the family, and, you know, the, the mother's mother hasn't seen it before, the grandma hasn't seen it, you know, this red rash and the blue toes, what, what does this mean, you know? And it, it, everybody gets confounded. And that, I think, is the primary dynamic in the FBI's investigatory response to D.B. Cooper, certainly in the early hours. Most FBI agents didn't think Cooper was going to jump. No one had ever jumped before. So they didn't think he was going to jump either, even though he had parachutes. Well, he did. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. You know, and then the idea is, where the hell did he jump? And it's like, I don't know. How do you figure out? You know, and then all of the mysteries. You know, where was the plane? Well, we can't really narrow down the flight path. Well, how come? Well, that gets a little murky, and you start looking at the transcripts, and then the transcripts, you see that there's 19 redactions in the flight transcripts that was released from the FAA Central Tower in, in, in a place called uh, uh, Seattle Central. What was redacted? Oh, well, that's just extraneous conversations with nearby airplanes. Oh, really? I'd like to hear about them. Can I see the unredacted transcripts? Well, they don't exist. I'm sorry. You know, so what, what is that crap all this? So that's part of the smoke, okay? Another piece of the smoke is nobody went looking for D.B. Cooper. No. For a while. They waited till the weather cleared up. Months. Well, <clears throat> yes and no. The, actu the actuality, and, and, and the FBI, another piece of the smoke is that, oh, we went looking for him. We had hundreds of soldiers out there in the woods. Yeah, but those hundreds of soldiers soldiers went looking four months after the skyjacking. Big whoop, you know. What did you do that night? Nothing. When did you send guys out into the woods? The first guy on the ground, the first boots on the ground, was two days later, 40 hours after the after DB Cooper, DB Cooper was on the ground by 8:30, one way or the other. He was either splattered out in the ground somewhere, or he was landed gently or tangled in a tree or something by 8:30, Wednesday, November 24th, 1971. Do you and, think he dropped in this drop zone? I think he dropped somewhere around there. I I don't think the drop zone is accurate because I don't think the flight path is accurate. Accurate, and I think this is part of the smoke screen. It's like, we, how come 46 or 7 years, whatever it is, we still can't nail down friggin' details like this anymore?
can't agree on any details. No, I, I don't know of any details where, you know, certainly Georgia doesn't agree with anything I consider as a fact. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that's because he just disagrees with the information or, or it's because he doesn't, he's never, he's never going to agree with anything I ever say. So at any rate, um, so this is highly problematic and it ignites all of the imagination of all the sleuths out there, the armchair sleuths, everybody that's sitting in an interest in front of a computer screen and, you know, roam on the internet looking for more information and so this re revitalization uh has come has been fueled by a number of pieces of interest the internet is is the big source of the vitalization guys like you are showing up with a microphone at my home and i'm talking to guys every day on the on the computer and exchanging a lot of information and getting lots of leads and Sure, you deal with a lot of trolls and you deal with a lot of crazy people and people that clearly have mental health issues. And, and yes, but still we're making progress. And Larry Carr, who in many ways uh, I consider to be a jerk, was also a highly innovative and creative FBI agent. From my point of view, he seemed to be the only FBI agent that was willing to listen to Cooper sleuths. At least some of them. He, he didn't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> he was a downright bully. He, he was adversarial with me. But he listened to people like Sluggo and Snowman. Um, uh, those are fellows who, those are the screen names, the internet names of major citizen sleuths. Um, Larry Carr certainly developed a highly productive relationship with Tom Kay and formed the, the Citizen Sleuth team, uh, opened up the archives and the files and the, and the uh, evidence uh, trove to Citizen Sleuths that he personally selected. I didn't get close to him, okay, but Tom Kay did. And fortunately, Tom Kay is, is fairly professional. He's, he's very professional and, 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 and open. And, and personable and, and approachable. And, and I, I'm grateful to Tom for that. And the Citizen Sleuths, too, uh, particularly when you meet them over lunch or one-to-one. You know, -one. Maybe not so much over emails. They could be a little distant, and I'm not quite sure what that's all about. But, you know, we all have busy lives and things like that. And, you know, if, if somebody's gotten 40 emails from journalists in one day, they don't want to, and I'm the 41st, eh, they don't have much time for me. You know, I understand that. Anyway, so Larry, Larry Carr really supercharged the revitalization of the D.B. Cooper case in 07 and 08 when he was the case agent up in Seattle. He jumped into the Internet and email communications and the drop zone chat room. And the drop zone was the place to be in 2008. And that's when I showed up. And that's... And it, I've been Zooming ever since. The Dispatch, um, I lost my freelance gig at The Dispatch <clears throat> when my editors uh, decided to move back to Indiana and they sold the paper to uh, a local corporation out here that just didn't want my kind of journalism. And uh, by then the housing bubble had burst and Graham wasn't making any money for the newspaper and there were other financial issues going on, so I was out. And that's when I started the Mountain News and I transferred all my journalism, all my chops and all my interests to the Mountain News. It's an online news 
uh, magazine. Uh, that's free. Anybody can come. And I really dove into the D.B. Cooper case in 2010 with that. And I used the Mountain News as my Cooper platform. And um, shortly after that, uh, Shutter, Shutter 45, also known as Dave Brown, started the D.B. Cooper Forum. Uh, the drop zone became uncontrollable in terms of trolls and crazy people and the, the people who managed the drop zone didn't want to do so much behavioral counseling with so many people so they just canceled the whole thing they walked away from it and Dave uh, in response uh, made the D.B. Cooper form a highly selective kind of thing that you had to register and be approved and some of the bad the bad actors were not allowed to be on the forum, and that has still called a lot of, caused a lot of bad blood. All those players have come to the Mountain News, and whenever and and I have 60 or 70 different articles on DB Cooper, so you can read pretty much three quarters of my book for free at the Mountain News in piecemeal form, and find all the commentaries from um, the more problematic and controversial players of the D.B. Cooper world, like Robert Blevins and Joe Weber um, and others. Uh, Derek Godsey is another person who has made a name for himself by being <laughs> obnoxious <laughs> <laughs> or displaying excessive amounts of youthful enthusiasm, <laughs> I think is perhaps a better, a more appropriate way to describe his behaviors. Um, Sometimes I feel like I'm an elder, and it's like I have all these wild child <laughs> sleuths out there asking me to, you know, what do you think about this guy? What do you think about that guy? And I want to write a book, and yeah, yeah and it's like, uh, you, you know, first of all, see if you can get the guy's driver's license. How tall was he? You know, give me some of the basic facts. How, what did he weigh in 1971? You know, did he, did he have a beer belly, or did that come later? You know, tell me. Find out, find out more before you say. Well, he looks like the suspect. Is okay. That's a start. Okay. So, but let's let's get a little bit more. <laughs> you know, come on. How much time do you spend actually moderating, just what goes on there? I between emails and phone calls, and all of that, the business. The business of D.B. Cooper, I spend at least an hour a day, probably more. I don't know. You know, um, my time is kind of open-ended. You know, I live in the woods. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. Uh, can't, I, I have no time or patience for a dog or any. You know, the only living thing are my potato plants, you know, and my onions and my strawberries. <laughs> and, you know, they take, and my apple trees. They take care of themselves. I water them, and that's about as far as I can go. You know, but, um, and Cooper is only part of my life um, because I have been on and off a professional storyteller and a, and a performer, a, a musician and an actor. Um, I've been on stage quite a bit uh, over the years, and I am, there is a great hunger in the world now for truthful stories. Um, and have you ever heard of the moth stories? The Moth Storytelling Hour. No. It's a big show on NPR radio. Um, there are 150 venues throughout the United States. There are two in Seattle and there's one in Portland. Um, of these um, monthly storytelling concerts, 
um, where individuals can come and tell personal stories that have a little meat on the bone. So they're kind of like, you know, the, and the moral of my story is this is what I learned, you know. And so it's got to be more than just cute or quippy or funny or sh like a shtick that you might tell at a coffee, uh, I mean, at a cocktail party for jokes or at a bar, you know, sitting at the, at the bar stool, you know, something like that. It's, it's, it's got to... It's got to be respectful and sacred and, and have substance to it. And there's a great hunger for that. And NPR Radio is really leading the charge in that. And there are a number of shows and there are spin-offs from The Moth. And I would say The Moth runs 150 venues and there's got to be an equal number of spin-offs from that. So there's hun literally hundreds of places for storytellers like me to go and tell personal stories about our families, our lives, growing up, lessons that I've learned. Um, and it's part of a resurgence of truthfulness in this country. And truth is distorted. What is true? You know? And in the Cooper in the Cooper world, we can't even agree on what the facts of the D B Cooper case are. None of them. Yeah. So you know, so the craziness the craziness is massive, you know. So I think what we're seeing is is that we're we're looking we're fine kindred spirits are seeking each other out and so I see overlap between my D.B. Cooper work my journalism and my storytelling so this whole thing about D.B. Cooper and me and what I'm doing and how I got into it it's it's part of a larger a larger story what do you want to know I want to know everything everything my god <laughs> Okay, well, let me start at the ending. We'll work our way backwards. And I'll tell you who, what I see as the key facts or the overarching themes or compelling information. And I'll start with who I think D.B. Cooper is. I'll work, our way, work my way backwards. D.B. Cooper knew more about jumping out of an airplane with a parachute than the pilots, anybody in flight control at Northwest Orient. And the guys actually flying the plane had to be reassured by the CIA. It's like, yeah, you guys are going to be able to fly a 727 with the aft stairs down because we do that all the time over here in Vietnam. Well, Cooper even knew the plane could take off with the stairs down. Bingo. Right. Exactly. And they wouldn't even do that. Right. And that was really secret. I don't even know if Boeing knew that. Boeing probably did. But Boeing had already conducted lots of flight tests with the aft stairs down because that was a selling point to the military. And those tests took place not too far away in Moses Lake at their special facility out there in the middle of the high desert. And so it is plausible, it is reasonable to assume that D.B. Cooper had covert operation experience. Commando, Special Forces, SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, Green Berets, pick CIA, pick whatever special you know, group you want. And when you talk to the guys who are in special forces and do this kind of work for a living, 
they're absolutely convinced that D.B. Cooper is one of them. And they got names, you know. And they're convinced. I mean, they're convinced. It's got to be Ted Braden. Oh, Ted was crazy. As one guy told me, he says, Ted, Ted had gonads bigger than watermelons, you know. And that's and there's a lot of respect for D.B. Cooper um, in special forces, in the special operations group. There's an organization called MACV SOG that I write about extensively, and they have begun writing about themselves extensively. And Snowman helped me extensively in researching Snowman's capacity to find people, to get information, contact information, email addresses, telephone numbers, physical addresses and things like that was superb. I've, I don't know how many laws were broken by Snowman, if any, but I'm sure he found every back door that is a, that is a back door to whoever's information. May, maybe him and Zuckerberg or, you know, play chess together every Monday afternoon. I don't know. But Snowman's access to information is unparalleled. And he shared it. And my book could not have been written to the extent that it was without Snowman's help. And what I know about MACVSOG and commandos and special forces in Vietnam and 727s and the special tests and everything that was going on um, is pretty much attributable to Snowman. And it's clear to me that if D.B. Cooper wasn't a commando, then he had relationships or contact with commando or commando-like guys, special forces, special operations, kinds of people. Could be family. He could have known where they were drinking and he was a bartender and he just listened with really good ears and he was really creative on his own. It could be something as simple as that. But he had access to their information and he had access to that brotherhood um, because his behavior was pretty slick. Yeah, that's something when you say it's a special forces guy that I really agree with because he stayed calm, cool, and collected Oh yeah, through the whole thing. Oh, yeah. And when you read other accounts of other hijackings, the copycats like Hanneman or McNally, and that information is now coming out because these guys are out of prison and they're now telling their story. The McNally, have you heard the McNally podcasts? No, I didn't oh, listen to okay. that. All right. Um, you really see... It's fascinating. It's hard to listen to. McNally was one of the last copycats. And he's a real criminal and acknowledges that. He's really clear about being a bad boy and sticking a gun in someone's face and how, how he decided to be aggressive and violent and, and his, his perspective on self-preservation. This is what I need to do and you're in my way and I've got the gun and you don't. And that's just how it is. You know, Cooper was vastly more sophisticated, vastly more successful. And it suggests his command of his environment was unparalleled. He was with passengers for hours. He was with Tina and the flight crew for five hours. And he kept everybody calm. He kept he kept the whole situation under control. They even said he was friendly. Friendly. He was nice. That's Tina's word. Nice. He was a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> Never broke a sweat. No. It's reasonable to assume that if Cooper had extensive 
relationship or contacts with the special forces community to learn the information that he knew. It's also plausible that he had relationships to draw upon for support, particularly in a getaway. And there's compelling information that there were extraction teams created to get Cooper out of there. So when no one, since Cooper had a 40-hour head start before anybody was in the ground, in the woods looking for him. Not a bad head start. Not a bad head start. Trained commandos can do a lot with 40 hours. Um, and particularly, you know, so they may have had state-of-the-art communication gear and transportation and um do you think they were active duty now now we're going down into the deeper rabbit hole we are at a, <laughs> we are at a underground crossroads my friend because if you go down that robot rabbit hole were they active duty then they were either on a on an op that this was sanctioned by somebody right that's a pretty deep rabbit hole. Or they were freelancing on company time, which is a pretty deep rabbit hole too. Because the military, I don't think, is all that cozy with a bunch of secretive trained operatives all taking a weekend pass to buzz out of Vietnam, <laughs> go home for the weekend, <laughs> and come on back Hijack to... Hijack an airplane and go you back know, to work. You know, and fly into Tonsonwood Airport on Sunday night, Thanksgiving weekend. You know, um, that's to do that and not attract attention. I think it's kind of hard to do because it only takes one hard ass to blow the deal. So I. It's hard to think that this was a freelance job on company time. That's my last option. It's possible, but it's my last option. I think it's more plausible that this, these were, what do they call it, reds? Retired but extremely dangerous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that fits the, more these, with the these, age of these the These were red ops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would think, I think that's a little... And that would fit in with the grudge kind of thing. That's another serious clue. And Bill Rollins captures that. Um, and it's interesting. Um, in my book, I talk about the application of remote viewing and, the, and some of the aspects of the science of consciousness, which some people, and it's a useful term to call it psychic sleuthing, to use the power of the mind to unravel the unknown that can't be proven any other way other than trying to transcend time and space by by using the your power of your of your consciousness can we go back in time can we go into some meditative trance and go back in time to november 24th 1971 and transcend transcend space and get on the plane and I write about that in some of the dreams that I've had and some of the efforts, the attempts that I've made to use re the, the skills of remote viewing uh, to ascertain some of the aspects of this case. 
And one of the mysteries of the D.B. Cooper world is how come no professional remote viewers are publicly talking about D.B. Cooper. There are plenty of well-established remote viewers, uh, particularly out of the Stargate, the military Army's Stargate program um, that was run by the CIA, initially run by the CIA, and, and came out of all of the Stanford University research and consciousness and remote viewing and, and, and all of that psychic stuff. Um, and they've written extensively, uh, uh, Joe McGonigal and David Morehouse and, and a lot of books none of them ever talk Cooper. And it's like, and I've reached out to them and they've been absolutely unresponsive. They've been less responsive than Tina. At least Tina answered the door. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what's up with those guys? And that, it may be just getting too close to home. And you've got the guys, the whole, the men who stare at goats gang at Fort Bragg mm -hmm. who are using the science of consciousness in an effort to weaponize the powers of the mind. Um, and they made a movie out of it. And George Clooney turned it into a comedy, which was fun. That was great. But the truth of the matter of what the military is doing with, with psychic powers is very real. And the potentials are vast. At the very least, imagine if every soldier could heal his own wounds with his mind in battle. You wouldn't need a medic. No. You know? You wouldn't need a vest. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like, holy shamoli. And, and, and you w might not even need a gun. If you could just look at your enemy and said, you're dead, lie down. If, you, if your focus was so strong that you could do that, you wouldn't have to shoot him. Or have them surrender. You know? You're not, an, you're not an Iraqi. You're not a terrorist anymore. You're not Islamic. You're, you're an altar boy. <laughs> let's, let's go to mass. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Can you brainwash somebody at a distance? And things like that. There are, the potentials here are vast. You know? Why worry about artificial intelligence? I, AI may be the least of our worries. You know? Um, and there are people checking this out. And John Ronson, the, the author who wrote the book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, and for those who don't know what that, is, that program is all about, it's a very real program where soldiers were being trained to focus their minds, to imagine, to envision uh, a herd of goats falling down dead because their heart stopped, and that's what their training was. And according to Ronson, they were successful. They were able to stop goat hearts long enough to kill the goats. That's wild. It is a very wild story. Now, and when you start looking into, so who was in charge of it? The, the, the general that was in charge of this was the uh, former army uh, chief of intelligence back in the 80s. His name is um, Stubblebine, General Stubblebine. Stubblebine's talking about it, and his wife is really into this stuff. And they're public. I think Stubblebine has died recently. Um, but... This is not woo-woo stuff, you know. This is not just the Art Bell's coast-to-coast <laughs> -coast show, you know. What do you, you know? I mean, it, but it is. I mean, this is where does art get the good stuff? This is the good stuff that the coast-to-coast -coast would talk about. This is legitimate stuff that's verifiable, corroborated, and um, and it's really, really powerful. 
So when people talk about, you know, you can't when the D.B. Cooper case is never going to get solved, it's like, says who? You know, not me. You know, I don't think Gen General Stubblebine is thinking that they never solved the D.B. Cooper case. None of the guys from the Stargate program is like, have you talked to them yet? You know, I'd like to hear them give their reasons why they don't think they could figure out who D.B. Cooper is. So when you, when you have that kind of issues, um, potentials, then the rabbit holes get really, really deep, really big. And it's beginning to rain where I'm sitting. It is raining. And right. I think we should go inside. Yeah, let's pause this and move inside. All right, we're back in from the rain, and let's continue with D.V. Cooper being a commando. Okay, so Cooper knew a lot, and the guys who do ballsy stuff for a living are convinced that Cooper's one of their guys. And that's where another smokescreen comes up, is because the FBI has really popularized the notion that the Cooper jump was a death leap and that Cooper was a wuffo, didn't know what he was doing. It was too tough. It was too cold, too rainy, too novembery, too dark, too this, too that. He didn't know enough. And a lot of people believed the FBI because it was the FBI. But now in the resurgence of you and me and the DZ and the forum and internet sleuths and a lot of journalists really digging into this, that is pretty much disbelieved. Not only the FBI's narrative, but also some of the sources that the FBI used to hang their hat on as proof. And I'm talking about Earl Cassie, who was the de facto technical advisor to the FBI, who completely reversed his position in 180 degrees from Cooper was a great guy, it wasn't that all that tough a jump, and he probably made it, to no way, Jose, and he just splattered on the ground somewhere. Um, and Cassie talked a lot about the parachutes and the difficulties that Cooper would have had with the parachutes that he, Cassie, provided to Cooper. That has all been pretty much been disproven. And as Cassie's reputation went down the drain in around 2011 and 2012, and more and more people were really discounting everything that he said, he went from being the hero of the D.B. Cooper investigation to a pariah. And then in April 2011, in fact, five years to this week, he was murdered. And that death is still unsolved. Yep, there's a lot of conspiracies in the Cooper world surrounding his murder also. Bingo. So I'm saying another smoke is smoke. Now, was he murdered to shut him up? Loose lips sink ships. Is there a puppet master? As Joe, Joe has Joe has coined, Joe's crazy in a lot of ways, okay? And I can only handle her for five minutes. 
and she busts my ass. She says, Bruce, every every time I call, you say, after five minutes, you say, I need to go, Joe. I'm in the middle of something. Every time I call, you say that. And I says, that's right, because I, I only have five minutes to really share with you, okay? <laughs> but to Joe's credit, she called, Mar she's characterized Marla as twisty butt, and... Um, and she came up with a great phrase for Cassie, too, that slipped my mind. But I'll think of it later. Okay. At any rate, um, Cassie's dead. Did it have anything to do? Loose lips sink ships? Oh, Puppet Master. Joe created the notion of a puppet master. And she feels that something or somebody is controlling the case and the narrative. And there's a while, and to some degree, I believe that there is a puppet master, and I think the puppet master is using Joe Weber. Joe Weber knows more about the case than pretty much anybody else that I know of. Everybody that's involved in the Cooper sleuthing, sleuthing world brings special talents and special capacities. Me, I go knock on people's doors. That's, that's my hallmark. That's my trademark. Joe is the super-duper nudge and weasels her way into people's lives where they're slamming doors in my face, Joe gets past that door. Somehow, somehow she's in the kitchen. I don't know if she comes in the back door. I don't know if FedEx delivers her in a big box or if she comes as part of an Amazon shipment. I don't know what it is, but Joe gets in the friggin' door and is drinking coffee at the kitchen table with whoever whoever we're trying to talk to, and is there, and, and is beloved. And and not only, and I'm, I'm getting this from other people, I'm getting it from sources. I mean, I, I, I learned a lot about Joe Weber when I went to visit Tina Mucklow's brother-in-law and sister. Um, Tina's sister, Jane, married an FBI agent, and then they moved in retirement out of San Diego where he was a field agent and they came up here and they, they were living in Shelton, Washington, which is 70 miles away. You know, it's so on this side of Puget Sound. So I went to visit them and Lee came to the door. It was another front door conversation, front stoop kind of conversation. And he started, you know, did Joe Weber send you or something like that? And he said, you know, that woman was camped out on the phone with my wife last night and they talked off for hours. You know, It's, it's like... Joe Weber is talking with your wife? The night before. The night before? And you had no idea. I had at the time I had no idea. And I later learned that Joe I had been talking about. I'm gonna go see the I'm gonna see Jane and Lee. And Joe says she called Jane and Lee to warn them that I was coming. So and ended up being on the phone. And Lee confirmed at least the fact that Jane was talking to Joe Weber for a long time so it's not just a story from joe weber so the girls got chops you know? <laughs> and i used to think that she was somebody's eyes and ears because she she would call me so much and email she, and she would be in everybody's face all the time and she would never shut up on the dz she posted thousands as a journalist i know how long it takes to to write a story that's 500 words or a thousand words and when you do it every day it can be tiresome and really weird you get, i'm ex i would be exhausted when i was a freelance writer and i was writing for the dispatch and i wrote five stories a, a week 
for them on regular because I'm getting paid 16 cents a word. So I'm cranking it out. I'm, you know, I'm trying to write as much good stuff as I can. You know, when it came down to the end of the week, I was, I was blitzed. I was exhausted. Joe Weber, 24-7. She is typing away. Cooper, and this. she's posting dozens of times a day. Dozens. I mean, I would see posts at 2 a.m., a post at oh. 4 a.m. She'd post at 1 p.m. And then from 1 p.m. to midnight, it was every 15 minutes. In it's it's almost incredible. like she was waiting for somebody to write something, and then she would respond right. instantly. Right. And whenever there was a new idea or a new clue or a new lead or something like that, she completely reinvent how Dwayne knew that guy. Or Dwayne was there when he was growing up, or his brother used to work with, you know, it's just, it's just the incredible sagas uh, of Joe Weber is just, just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, you know. Entertaining if it's, it, it, it would be more entertaining if it wasn't so exhausting. Because I couldn't read all of it. It got to the point wherever I see a post, I would just skip and go to the next. Yeah, I just, I just, I could. There's only so much Joe Weber I can handle in any one 24 hours. You know, I just. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see she left the message. She called me this morning. So, you know. <laughs> so anyway, um, so Cassie's dead. What was Cassie's role? Everybody now knows that Cassie was a bullshit artist. Uh, we know a lot more about his personal life, but we don't don't know everything about his personal life, and I think there's a lot of mysteries uh, about who Earl Cassi truly is. His family's not talking to me. I've tried talking to the family. the The family got me almost arrested. Um, they asked me. They I, I I tried to approach the son, and I believe the brother-in-law, when. The police were on at the home investigating the crime. So I was there the day after the body was discovered or two days. I was I was there as part of the media assault. You know, the, mm -hmm. the satellite trucks show up and there's a dozen microphones and guys like me running around trying to get quotes and interviews and blah, blah, blah. And the son was standing in the driveway with, I think, his uncle. And it was quite an animated conversation. And there was no yellow tape up. So, and I didn't have a microphone. I just walked up with a pad of paper and my press pass. I mean, you know, I was, I was properly credentialed and identified. And I said, excuse me, I'm Bruce Smith from the, from the Mountain News. I have a lot of information about your father. And I, I caught eye contact with the son. And I said, I'd like to share what I know. I think it might be helpful to you. Because I knew a lot about Earl Kasi. And he freaked. And the detective saw that something was happening. So the detective on site walked up and the son said, get this guy out of here. And the cop didn't need any more encouragement to strong arm me off. You know, he was glad to do something, you know, <laughs> productive. So I get strong armed off the property and then the yellow tape went up and he said, you sit in your car and you don't move till I tell you you can move. <laughs> I was like, okay. So... You know, welcome, to, welcome to the DB Cooper case. You know, okay, gets a little rough sometimes. All right, but um, so what is Cassie's real role? It tells us to me, regardless of what Cassie's role was, and it could be major, but at least it shows us how the FBI 
functioned as a political animal and was incentivized to control the public story of D.B. Cooper. And they certainly used or aligned themselves with Cassie's perspectives to shape their own story. Did they do that in an orchestrated fashion, or was it just kind of kindred spirits working in parallel or coincidentally, anything like that? That's unclear. But to me, again, it's one of those, is it, where there's smoke, there's probably going to be fire. And I see a strong relationship. The FBI denies it. Kings County Sheriff's Office denies it. They said, Bruce, everybody in the world is jumping up and down, screaming, you know, collusion. And they're saying all the things that you're saying. And we've talked about it with the FBI. And they assure us there's none of that going on here. I said, okay. However, the public information officer who told that to me recently retired. And she went on a road trip to clear her head of 30 years worth of law enforcement gobbledygook. She says, I'll be back in town in June and let's go to Starbucks. <laughs> so stay tuned. <laughs> I wonder what she's going to have to say. I, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm buying. So, <laughs> so anyway, that's the latest on that front. Working our way back. So what really happened? One, again, in this new emergence, this resurgence of interest in the case, one of the things that's changed and guys like me bring to the table is a ballsiness. And there was an unspoken rule back in the 70s and 80s, that journalists weren't going to push the passengers too much for information. There may have been contact made, but the journalists didn't push it that hard. That's not necessarily what the passengers said. They felt pushed. But from my perspective, I didn't see a major push. But that has changed now. And so, as you heard today, I contacted Bill Mitchell. I sought him out. Bill Mitchell was the guy who sat next to D.B. Cooper. The Washington State Historical Museum sat down with Bill Mitchell and got his story, and it's archived now, so you can listen to the tapes that they did with Bill Mitchell. Um, Bill Mitchell has now participated in some documentaries in the History Channel. He's on camera. Um, but he's kind of come out of the woodwork. He has been pretty quiet for 30 years. He was pretty much left alone. Uh, for 40 years, he was pretty much left alone. Um, Mike Cooper was pretty much left alone. Most people don't know that there were two Coopers on the airplane. There was Dan Cooper, now known as D.B. Cooper, and that's a whole story how the name switched. And then there was Mike Cooper, and Mike Cooper was a history teacher, high school history teacher who's going to see his parents for the Thanksgiving weekend. He's flying in from Missoula, okay? Well, those names got mixed up, and for a week, the FBI thought they were looking for Mike Cooper. <laughs> and Mike Cooper got fired when his boss, when his high school found out that he was a hijacker from the FBI. The FBI told his, his principal that he was a hijacker. They, they busted him. He, he, he didn't have a job. He, he, after Thanksgiving, he went home and found he 
was unemployed. <laughs> I've never heard that before. That is crazy. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, Mike. Mike's written about it. Mike got reinstated, um, so he got his old job back, and subsequently made a career out of talking about what it's like to go through the ringer when the wheels of justice grind you to a pulp and spit you out. Yet to this day, the FBI has never apologized to Mike Cooper for triggering his firing. I'm not surprised by that. Uh, I, I am not surprised, but I sure am disappointed. And I'm a little angry because... For Christ's sakes, there are 17,000 special agents in the FBI, and not one of them has five minutes to call Mike Cooper up and say, hey, I'm sorry. Come on. Come on. Let's get real here, okay? You guys screwed up, you do the right thing. Anyway, moving on. So the last major piece of investigation that I've done on my own, with some help from Snowman, and others, was finding passengers and finding out which ones are still alive. The first thing to do was to try to find a legitimate, accurate passenger list. That doesn't exist. Not only, do we, not only can we not agree on the facts, we can't even agree on who was on the friggin' plane. <laughs> Holy shamoly! The published list of passengers from the Seattle Times that was published publicly the day after the skyjacking is inaccurate. It was based upon an FBI rendition of who they thought was on the airplane, and their list is wrong. And their list is wrong because the list that they got from Northwest Orient is also wrong. But if you look at all three lists, you can see that there's certain agreement among at least 30 there's the same 30 names keep appearing. So you can narrow it down to five or six. You know, was it the husband and wife were on? Only one of them, <laughs> okay? Or was the uh, McPherson party actually three people or just the father and son, you know? Um, because it says um, uh, McPherson's son... McPherson Scott, and that's in, in three seats. So it was widely assumed that there were three three members of the McPherson family were on plane. We now know when I talked to Scott McPherson, it was only two. It was him and his father. But they had a company employee sitting with them, and they bought three tickets together. But the employee wasn't sitting with them, was in another seat. Because they sat in first class, and the employee was was behind them or, you know, something like that. So there are all these kinds of internal confusion. And that really suggests if I could figure this out or had, if I was the one that had to figure this out 45 years after the fact, how come somebody from the FBI was not tasked in 1971 and in 1972 to develop a bona fide, definitive, 100% accurate, passenger list how come there wasn't one guy calling everybody up hi i'm from the fbi i'm making sure were you on flight 305 last week oh you were was your wife on board oh no she met you at the airport thank you very much okay you know and just clarify all this stuff 
it's like you realize there was like nobody in charge of management of information at this level. In truth, there were no, there were no computers, no internet, no cell phones. Fax machines were just coming into usage. Um, the exchange of information, the gathering of data, the gathering information was Stone Age. You know, it's very different than it is now. So I have a degree of commiseration. I have, I have a degree of understanding of what was going on in 1971. But still, who was in charge? The reality is, most people don't know who was in charge. Do you know who the case agent, the initial case agent for Norjack was? The only name that comes to mind is Ralph Himmelsbach. That's what most people think. And the FBI wants you to think that. It wasn't. Ralph is just the loudest guy. But he wasn't in charge. Ralph wasn't even in the office that was in charge. Ralph was a field agent out of Portland. And what made Ralph famous and became the face of the FBI investigation is because Ralph was part of the team that crossed over the borderline, went out of jurisdiction to Tina Barr to dig up the money when the money came in. So instead of the FBI out of, um, out of the Vancouver office digging up the money at Tina Barr, the Portland boys drove across the bridge and dug up the money. And there are rumors about exchanging that information. When did Seattle find out about the money? What was their relationship with the Vancouver agents? Because the Vancouver field office was under the jurisdiction of the Seattle division office and things like that. And there are strong rumors, but I can confirm it, that Himmelsbach kept all that information to himself and froze out Seattle and kept the glory for himself. Can't well, he prove did that. write a book right when he retired. He sure did. And it became the primary book. It's, it's the only book written by anybody that was involved in the Norjack case from the FBI's point of view. It's a very informative book. It's an uneven book. <clears throat> uh, needs to be to, re, um, to fully understand it, to fully appreciate it. I had to read it two or three times, and I'm still learning from it. Um, and probably that kind of book would never be written now by an active uh, an actor of a retired agent. Uh, so it's inf very informative of, of how the FBI uh, actually functions. The actual field agent was Charlie Farrell. And he I've was, never even heard that name. Bingo. How come you haven't? And the reality is because is Charlie didn't tell a lot of people. He was a quiet, in-the-woodwork kind of guy. He wrote a 300-page memoir of his experience as the case agent for the D.B. Cooper case. I've never seen it. His family has circulated copies. Jeffrey Gray has seen it. Jeffrey Gray has publicly talked about it. He has shown pictures from the book. I've asked the family. Charlie, Charlie Farrell died a few years ago. I've asked the family to see the at least a copy. They've been unresponsive to me. I've asked other FBI agents to intercede for me on behalf of the family, and they said they have and would and have, but I've never heard from the Charlie Farrell family. And the question is, why? Why not 
talk about this? And why be so selective? You showed it to Jeffrey Gray. If it's a 300-page memoir? Yeah. Why not publish it? Why not publish it? Yeah. So again, that's more smoke. If I wrote 300 pages, I would want someone to read it. Yeah. And particularly when people want to read it and you have vital, what could be vital information about America's only unsolved skyjacking. Don't you have a moral responsibility to share information at least 45 years after the fact, particularly when it's post posthumously? You know, it's like, what the hell are we keeping secret? What's going on? Again, more smoke. Puppet master. Puppet master, maybe. Okay. So, let's get into a tangent on... Um... I was going to talk about the passengers. Okay, go ahead. All right. I was just trying to regroup where I was. So, I'm talking to passengers now in a way that I don't think the passengers have been talked about or talked with in the past. And, I've, and there are a few that are still alive. Bill Mitchell is the youngest, one of the youngest. He's 66. You know, that's one of the problems with a case that's 45 years old. That means everybody's old. <laughs> and Scott McPherson must have been a teenager or high school or something when he was on the plane because I think he's in his late 50s. I don't know. I didn't ask him, but when talking to him, he sounded like a middle-agey kind of guy. He wasn't old and decrepit like me and everybody else, you know, but um, well, not that I'm decrepit, but anyway, I'm on Medicare, so hey. Um, and what I found is that the story that the passengers told me is vastly different than the public story. The FBI's narrative, the Northwest Orient narrative, the Tina Mucklow story, the Alice Hancock story, the Florence Schaffner story, and the Bill Mitchell story. Bill Mitchell's story lines up with the flight attendants and the crew and the, and the official version of what happened on that plane. Whoa. We have two different stories. Why? It's more smoke. The official version is that the plane was hijacked. A note was exchanged just after wheels up in Portland. Everybody seems to pretty much agree with that. The note went to Florence. Florence freaked out. She summons Tina. Tina and Florence were the two youngest stewardesses. They're in the back uh, in the economy section of the airplane. Alice Hancock was the third flight attendant. She's in the forward section of the airplane up in first class. And she visually can see something going on, but she doesn't... Um, uh, She's not consciously aware of what's going of in the first few moments of the skyjacking. Uh, Florence freaks out, uh, summons Tina. Tina comes over. Tina takes command. Tina steps in. Even though she's the junior member, she takes charge. <clears throat> she get, reads the notes. She gets on the intercom with the pilots. You know, got a guy back here. He's got a bomb. We're being hijacked. Got a note. Florence is coming forward with the note, and I'll take it, you know, take it from there. Um, so Florence goes up to the cockpit, and that's the last we see of Florence for the rest of the, the early part of the flight. T 
Tina sits down next to Cooper, and then we have, you know, here are the bombs. She sees the sticks of dynamite, blah, 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 blah. And then I need the four parachutes, $200,000. And then they fly around Puget Sound for two and a half hours waiting for the money and the parachutes to arrive at SeaTac Airport. Everybody agrees with that scenario. However, there is a lot of details that the, the, the passengers told me about that the crew have never talked about and the timelines don't match. What are those details? First detail is is that the crew makes a big deal about how they secured the plane early in the hijacking and they moved the passengers forward, telling them that there was a mechanical issue, that Captain Scott made a, a, a public announcement that there is a minor technical difficulty. They're dropping fuel over Puget Sound, getting ready for an, a, an emergency landing. There's nothing to worry about. In the context of 1971, that was a scenario that every American had seen 20 times in movies because it was a plot line in a lot of movies, in airplane disasters, in World War II movies. John Wayne had dumped a lot of fuel from a lot of his planes in a lot of his movies before he was going to crash land in Burma or in Europe or France or England or wherever, okay? So Americans were used to that a scenario that that was a legitimate concern, and John Wayne always landed the plane safely. So... The, the passengers were reassured. They were told a comforting, a comforting bedtime story that had absolutely no truth whatsoever. And you never hear a pilot talk about dumping fuel now. No. No, because it's dangerous. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense. Right. So it's all canard. And... The passengers supposedly all moved forward of row 14. Cooper was in row 18, so that meant there were three empty spaces between him and the nearest passenger, and Tina and Alice kept the boundary line, like the DZ zone, you know, the, you know, uh, demilitarized zone, okay, and would keep all the passengers forward of that. That's not true. The passengers were moved forward for landing upon approach to SeaTac, as when the passengers told me they were asked to move forward. During the actual flight, the skyjacking flight for the two and a half hours where they flew, quote-unquote, dumping fuel over Puget Sound, they were able to roam all over the cabin. And many of them used the real laboratory by Cooper. And at least one guy told me he was cracking jokes with Cooper. Really? Yeah. Jack Almsford from Livermore, California. He was waiting in line to use the real lavatory, and they'd been up there for an hour or two, and he starts talking to Cooper and saying, you know, if we're up here any longer, they can serve us Thanksgiving dinner up here. And everybody left. Jack said it was a good joke. It went over well with that guy (laughs) sitting in row 18. Because Tina was sitting next to him, lighting his cigarettes and chatting him up, everybody on the plane thought that D.B. Cooper was a VIP and Tina was giving him, you know... Some extra attention. Extra attention. Jack Armsford thought he must have been a VIP from Northwest Orient. There were three government officials. There was a guy by the name of Pruitt, 
And Karen Pruitt um, was the daughter who came to the 2011 symposium. And it's my understanding from her that her, her and her father, who were government officials for the GSA, and they were like big mucky mucks in the accounting for the Pacific Northwest region, I think it's called Federal Region 11 or something like that, and they were doing some investigation, and they were on official business and coming back from Missoula or something like that. And they thought that must have been another government official back there that they just didn't know about. So, you know, there was like, who is that guy? There was there was an awareness of that guy back there with the, with the shades on that the pretty girl is sitting next to the whole time. You know, there was a real awareness of that, okay? So um, the next big thing was, as they're flying up and down the Puget Sound to keep everybody happy, the drinks were free. I haven't heard that before. No, you haven't. Nobody has. And some of the passengers told me that a couple of the guys in row 12, 10, 11, or 12, they're not quite sure. One guy was in uniform, and everybody talks about the guy in the cowboy hat. Apparently, the guy in the cowboy hat got royally drunk and need to be physically subdued. And Tina and Alice don't talk about that, but apparently they were involved. Cooper got involved and at least stood halfway out of his seat and told him to shut up and sit down. I haven't heard this at all. It, no one ever talks about this. You see, this is a sanitized... What, you're, what you've heard up till now has been a sanitized version. What happened on the plane, the script of what happened and what the crew was... The script that the crew was supposed to read from began being written during the skyjacking, by North, at least by Northwest Orient, probably in conjunction with the FBI. I can't prove that, but looking backwards, in hindsight, it seems as though that Tina and Alice and Florence and Bill Mitchell all were compelled to get on the page and sing the company song. Read from the script. Read from the script. Don't talk about the drunk guy. So midway through the flight, after this guy finally gets subdued, no more drinks. So they closed the bar. It seems like a bad idea to offer free drinks when there's a hijacking going on. Well, at the time it made sense. All right, <laughs> you want to keep everybody happy, okay? Again, it was also policy, okay? Keep the passengers happy. Also, it was part of the skyjacking protocols from the point of view of the, of the airlines. Yeah, the context of the airline's response was do whatever is going to keep everybody happy. And they weren't the airlines, and the airline industry was in direct conflict with the FBI and their perspective about how to handle skyjackings and what we want to do. The airlines wanted no muss, no fuss. Give them, keep them happy, fly them wherever he wants to go, drop them off, and then fly everybody back. We'll, we'll give them free meal tickets, we'll give them a free passenger ticket, they can, we'll fly them to Miami next week, whatever they want to do, or Aruba, you know, it's on the house, not, as long as, as long as they don't cause a stink, okay, we want to keep everybody happy, bottom, and we want our plane back with no bullet holes in it, and we want no injuries, because we don't want any friggin' attorneys and legal suits and liabilities and all that kind of stuff, FBI, completely different, they, the cowboys ruled, they wanted a gun battle. They wanted a confrontation. Um, and the history of armed confrontation on hijackings was the FBI was willing to accept collateral damage. 
of dead passengers and wounded passengers as long as they got the hijacker. And the 58 November skyjacking that took place a few months before the Cooper skyjacking, to this day, is the only time that the FBI had to bite the bullet and pay out liability payments to the uh, families of the, of the deceased because the FBI provoked an armed confrontation on the runway and shot out the plane's tires and refused to let the plane be refueled. It was a, uh, it was a uh, charter flight out of Nashville, on it, um, and the skyjacker wanted to go to the Bahamas and needed to refuel in Jacksonville, Florida for refueling, and the FBI intercepted it and wouldn't let it take off and shot it up, and the skyjacker, in response, shot up the plane, shot the pilot and shot his hostage and then shot himself. And those families su successfully sued the FBI, and J. Edgar Hoover was not happy. He fought that lawsuit tooth and nail. And I can only imagine the kinds of pressures that those families and those attorneys were under. And there's a documentary coming out on Netflix, supposedly, that illustrates what the FBI will do when they're backed into a corner. And it ain't pretty. What's the documentary called? Do you have any I idea? I don't know. The skyjacking is known as 58 November, and I believe that's the, the, it's like the documentary is something pretty straightforward. I understand. It's called The Story of 58 November or, or the, the, something along those lines, or the, the day the FBI had to pay or something like that. You know, um, I haven't, It hasn't been released, but I, I saw a trailer for it about six months ago. And it was supposedly going to come out real soon, and, and I don't know if it got shot down. Maybe it's been buried. Maybe it got, you know, bought and killed, you know? It's like, uh, it's like Stormy Daniels, you know? Who knows? Right. Okay? Uh, maybe Netflix is like uh, AMI and, uh, you know, these guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're, we're going to put it on Netflix. Well, uh, you know, here's a million dollars. Now go away, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, we showed it one night. You didn't see it? Gee, you missed it, you know? <laughs> you know? Well, who knows? Who knows? Who knows what that story is? At any rate, 58 November is very real and is now very pop, very much popularized by Bill Rollins because it's part of his narrative. It's not in his book because he doesn't talk about Joe Lakechich, uh, but Joe Lakechich, 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 is a Nashville man whose daughter was the hostage who was killed, and he was, I believe, the key motivating force behind the legal actions. And Bill Rollins feels that... He took it even one step further. He went further. He says, two can play this game. You, you want to fuck with me? Watch this. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, I got a dog in this fight. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a big dog. <laughs> you know, so anyway... The last thing from the passengers, and this is the coup de grace, the, the official narrative is the plane gets lands at 5.30 in the afternoon because the, passenger, because the parachutes and the money is on the runway. Um, the official narrative is that the money and the parachutes are in a pickup truck, a Northwest Orient pickup truck driven by Ali, and the money's guarded by a Seattle homicide detective by the name of Wayne something-something. It's in, it's in Jeffrey's book. The official narrative is the plane comes down, a second pickup, pickup truck comes up with an air stairs. And back in 1971, the, on, on the runways, you would see a lot of these pickup trucks with the stairs. And the pickup truck would drive up to the side of a plane, door would open, and passengers would walk out 
the stairs and get down to the tarmac and then walk into the terminal. That was fairly standard procedure. It was a pain in the ass in the wintertime, uh, in the rain, and yada, yada, yada. But uh, it's how business was done, uh, particularly with 727s. Ironically, they didn't use the aft stairs to get passengers off the plane. They used the these air stairs that that drew up, uh, that uh, rode up on a on a pickup truck. So the official narrative is: once the air stairs were in place, the door opens. Tina Mucklow walks up the aisle, walks down the stairs, picks up the money bag, comes up, comes back on the plane, walks down the entire tile aisleway. Everybody sees money popping out of the money bag, which is filled to the gills. Brings it back to Cooper. In row 18, Alice joins her. Florence comes out of the cockpit. The three flight attendants and Cooper are in row 18. He expects, inspects the money. He rifles fingers through it. And he says, well, I guess it's all here. And Alice says, can the passengers go? He said, yes. And the passengers got up. And, and the go. passengers would have heard this. Yes. Because they're sitting right there. Well, now they're, at, they're no further back than row 14. Everyone agrees that when the plane is on the ground, all passengers are forward of row 14. Okay? It's just the timing. The timelines don't match up. Flight crew intimates that they moved them early in the flight, like in the first 15, 20 minutes. Okay? Passengers say, no. We, stayed, we roamed around the plane, the cabin, for two hours. We used the lavatories. We were drinking, yada, yada. It was a big party. Okay? But they didn't know they were being hijacked until this point. No, no nobody knew. Nobody knew that there was a hijacking. But the, when the plane landed and they didn't come up to the terminal, then people began to wonder. When they saw the money come down the aisleway, most people really began to wonder. Now, the passenger sitting in row six was a fellow by the name of Larry Feingold. Larry, I believe, is an old guy. He's pushing ninety right now. Uh, but when I talked to him a couple of years ago, he was hale and hearty. He lives in Israel right now. And at the time, in 1971, he was the assistant district attorney, federal district attorney for the federal courts in Seattle, and was flying back after hearing a corruption trial in, um, in Portland. And what he and the passengers told me is that Tina did not leave the plane. Rather, two men entered the plane and brought the money bag on board and waited for Tina in the forward section of the plane. So two guys come on, bring the money bag on, Tina walks up the aisle, gets the money, and brings the money down the aisle, and everybody sees the money. So, so that link matches up. Both narratives match. Larry told me something that no one else told me, which is really unusual. I believe Larry, and he has told this story many times, it's my understanding. What Larry said happened next is the guys didn't leave. So Tina brings the money down. And one of the guys starts walking down the aisleway and sees Larry and stops to talk with him. And they know each other. This agent is named, he's an FBI agent. Larry identified him as an FBI agent named John. He said, I knew him from the federal courts in Seattle. I don't remember his last name, but he leans over and tells me the hijacker is on board. And that's when I, we were beginning to suspect when we saw the money that there was a hijacking on board, particularly since we weren't at the terminal and we're out, we were out in West Bongo, Congo at the end of the runway. We're at the very end of SeaTac Airport where nobody's around. 
and there's and there's a fuel truck out there and there's the staircase and the, there's the guys in the pickup truck and yada 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 so we knew something was up it was everything was out of the ordinary and 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 Larry told me he says John says I'll be back and I'll tell you more John leaves Larry continues down the aisleway and what happens next I don't know but somehow that guy John gets turned around and exits the airplane and the other guy exits the airplane at that point the narratives match up all the passengers get up and they all leave the airplane by the time they get to the bottom of the spares there was another FBI agent there Bill Mitchell told me he says there was an FBI agent at the bottom of the stairs and I asked him were we hijacked and and yet and the FBI agent said yes you were hijacked now but it's over you're safe please and by now a bus a shuttle bus from United Airlines showed up and everybody got on board the bus so there was a lot of action happening and the FBI was present at the plane which I've never heard before right and the FBI will never say that before Jeffrey Gray writes that there was an FAA official on board the plane or who wanted to board the plane and warn D.B. Cooper of the, con the grave consequences of his actions and encouraged him to surrender, okay? That I've heard. Okay, okay. I have not been able to confirm that with any documentation that I've seen. Now, maybe Jeffrey saw it or was told it or was encouraged to include that in his book because there's smoke around Jeffrey Gray and his book. I've asked Jeffrey, how did you get so much? Back in 19, when Jeffrey wrote this book in 2010, Larry Carr was talking, but no one had, and the Citizen Sleuths were just starting. But Larry Carr gave Jeffrey Gray unprecedented access for journalists commentary, interviews, discussions, questions, phone calls, emails, come read the files, let me explain the files, look at the evidence, yada, pictures, everything. Larry walked him through it. How did Jeffrey get such access to all the goodies? Jeffrey, all he would say to me is, Bruce, you know, every journalist works very hard in developing their sources. And after we develop those sources, we protect them vigorously. And that's all I'm gonna say. I said, thanks a lot, Gigi. <laughs> so anyway, so money's on board, passengers are off the plane, they're on their way. Um, Bill Mitchell told me, he says they started reading off the passenger list, which was last name, first initial. So they're looking, um, you know, so it was Mitchell W. And he says, you know, I'm here. He was the first one. His, his was the first name uh, uh, shouted out. And he said, I thought I was the prime suspect. And Bill Mitchell's perspective is through 19, you know, through the current lens of terrorism. He bought a plane ticket in cash. He had no luggage. He was a young man. He was 20 years old. He's a college student, a little scruffy. He probably didn't shave, you know, he probably didn't take a shower that day either, you know. So he looks like he could be a hijacker, you know, right. like a criminal type. He thought that's how people perceived him. 
okay? But, um, but that may be his own memory going through a lens of terrorism and, and stuff like that. Um, and Cooper D was the next name, and they went through everybody else, and then they realized we're looking for Cooper D, you know? So, um, and it's my understanding that D. Cooper became D.B. Cooper uh, through a mix-up with the United, with the Associated Press. There was a journalist, um, the FBI called Portland PD. Have you heard this story? Yeah, there's yeah, a petty yeah. criminal. Yeah, petty D. criminal. D. Yeah, you know, go pick him up. And the, the reporter hears, you know, what is the FBI, what are you going to do? He said, well, the FBI wants us to pick up D.B. Cooper. And he tells the editor there, you know, the cops are looking for D.B. Cooper, which was true. And the editor said, you know, that's the hijacker, and by the end of the night, everybody was calling him D.B. Cooper. So that's that's the story. So that's one story. There's other stories, but it, it involves Clyde Jobin, Jacobin, or whatever his name is. There's different versions of what he did, and you know, and which editor and the AP, and was the Oregonian involved, and you know, it, there's different kinds of versions of that. Anyway, so. Um, the next, so the money's on board, passengers are off, uh, Alice and Florence and Tina are back there, and, uh, there's some confusion in the narratives about what happens next. It's my understanding is that Tina stays back. Tina's a good girl. Tina's going to do what the company wants her to do. The company's going to want Tina to do whatever the Skyjacker wants the company and Tina to do. So everybody's kind of like, kind of standing on one foot, like, what do we do next? The passengers are gone. And Radicek, who's a real problem solver, he's really the command presence in the cockpit, even though he was the second officer and the co-pilot. Mm -hmm. Scotty was really, uh, um, he's not a command, he's not a command pilot. He, <clears throat> he was skilled. He flew the hump in World War II. He's not, he's not a wuss. You know, definitely he's got chops. But he's not a guy who's going to take action. He's not a John Wayne figure. Radicek is the John Wayne. And people hated him for that because he was always throwing his weight around. And when you talk to him on the, on the phone, he's, it, it's a pleasure talking to him on the phone. He's very authoritative, very articulate. You know, my kind of guy. Take great notes, great, great quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Talk with me for 70 minutes. Beautiful. At any rate, the question is, among the crew, what do we do? And, and I don't know how long this takes, but Florence and Alice decide, in lieu of a corporate decision, Let's just get out of Dodge. The door's open. The bus is down there. We, we can just walk down the steps, and we're good to go. Well, the pilots could have jumped out the window. The right, right. window in the cockpit right. also. And, and, uh, and other hijacking subsequent also, too. The, the crew would leave the hijacker with an empty plane. So this was a strategy that was certainly discussed or known to most pilots and most crews. And... Uh, response protocols to skyjackings and these kinds of emergencies, there, at least informally, there had been lots of strategy, strategizing going on 
at least informally. But also, I believe it also was taking place formally, too. So the question is what to do. Florence and Alice come back, and Cooper's saying, can we go? And he says, yes, you can go. They leave. Alice forgets her purse. She comes back again. So Alice is back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Alice and Florence leave. They're gone. They're on the bus. So it's now the flight crew in the cockpit, Tina and Cooper. Um, at some point, Cooper tells the cockpit, get ready to take off. We're going to take off with the stairs down. Now, I don't know when this happened. There was a lot of other conversations back and forth. We're going to fly to Mexico. I want you to fly this, you know, 10,000 feet, this landing gear down, flaps at 15. But, you know, all these kinds of things, these metrics and things like that. The refueling, there were a lot of issues with the refueling. Four different trucks had to come in. The FBI started monkeying around. Old habits die hard. They wanted to screw things up, even though the airlines told them to back down. You know, and the FBI said, fuck you. You know, we're in charge. We got the guns. You know, we're the, we got, we're, I'm carrying the badge. You know, and it's uh, so there's a tension all over the place. Radicek intervenes. He tells them, you know, fill up the plane, you goddamn son of a bitches. I, you know, it's my life on the line. You know, and, and Radicek told me, he says, I'm only going to tell you once. Yes, I did indeed raise my voice to the FBI. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, li lives are at stake here. So fuel up the plane. Fuel her up. And, uh, and I'm in charge. So, so Radicek really asserted himself. So at any rate, um, Scotty made the decision not to abandon Tina and escape from the cockpit. So Scotty did not want to leave the plane and leave ta and throw Tina under the bus, literally. Um, and so they, so Scotty, so if Scotty wasn't going to leave, then Radicek and Anderson all decided. So it was a group, a group decision to stay and fly Cooper wherever he wanted to go, and to and to have Tina's back. And Tina, Cooper insisted that Tina stay because he was denied the possibility of takeoff with the stairs down. And not only did the flight crew not know that you could fly the 727 with the stairs down and had to be reassured that that was possible, nobody in the world knew you could take off with the stairs down. So that's how advanced Cooper's knowledge of the plane was. So he had some pretty, pretty special information. Coop, Scotty put his foot down, absolutely refused. He wasn't going to budge. It's like, you can blow me up right now, but I'm not taking off with the stairs down. You know, you do what you're going to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I'm not taking off. With the stairs down. Yeah, and that's when Cooper's just like, fine, we'll right. just lower him when we're in the air. Exactly. So Cooper says, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm only going to fight wars that I know I can win. So, um, but his, his, his rebuttal was, well, if we don't take off with the stairs down, then Tina stays with me. It's like, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, that was an easy decision for Northwest Orion. Oh, you want Tina? Fine, no problem. <laughs> Which is maybe why Tina has PTSD. <laughs> you know, there were a lot of lessons learned, a lot of life lessons learned by a lot of people on November 24th, 1971. And, uh, you know, so much for company loyalty. So Tina's in back, and they finally take off. 
at 7.30. They're on the ground. The refueling and everything like that takes a little bit longer than two, like two hours and 10 minutes. Uh, and a lot of things, you know, getting rid of the passengers, getting everything on board, uh, f- flight pass, the refueling and things like that. But it's, and again, this is not widely discussed. It's not part of the official story, but it's now widely believed that Tina was in the back of the plane alone with Cooper for 45 minutes. And nobody knows what happened. It's widely speculated that she was raped. That's not known. By Cooper. By Cooper. It's not known. I've never heard that. Yeah. Welcome to the welcome to the welcome to the inner sanctum. You're talking to Cooper royalty. So there are people that there are people on the flight crew. I think I got that primarily from Galen. And Galen says that Florence told Florence is not talking to anybody now. The last person she talked to was Jeffrey in 2010. The last person she talked to before she talked to get to 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 Jeffrey in 2010 was Galen in 2009. And he had a number of phone conversations with Florence in South Carolina and emails in 2009. And she told him that she thought something of a sexual nature had occurred between Tina and Cooper and that Tina was assaulted, sexually assaulted. The word rape was never used, but molestation or assault was used. Molestation, molested was the word that was generally used. Um, that's reinforced by Himmelsbach, who to this day is, continues to call Cooper a rotten, sleazy crook and never backs it up. Why? When Tina's calling Cooper a nice guy, how come Himmelsbach is calling Cooper a sleazy criminal, rotten, sleazy criminal? Himmelsbach has never given any specificity to that. And he said it a lot. In fact, at his retirement party, everybody was wearing, he was a rotten, sleazy crook t-shirts at Himmelsbach's party. <laughs> um, a lot of people were there. Some very strange relationships have developed. Bill Radicek, Bill Radicek and Ralph Himmelsbach have become the best of friends. When I was talking with Ralph Himmelsbach, and I was talking with Ralph because I showed up on his doorstep, and fortunately he didn't have a shotgun in his hand because he would have blown me away. But he was unarmed, and as soon as I mentioned, I saw that he was looking for, that he was upset that I had invaded his castle. And you have to remember, Ralph Himmelsbach um, basically lived in a little castle um, with a causeway. And it was the causeway was maybe about a thousand feet long. It was something out of a medieval, like King Arthur, you know? And the lands around the causeway and the island of the house um, wasn't flooded at that time, but you could see that it was pretty muddy and watery. Um, but then in the wintertime, in the rains, it would flood out. You could see, you could see that this, this was a causeway elevated above a waterway, you know? Um, and I was just going driving around mud plains and drove up to this very elegant turquoise and stone 
uh, custom-built home and outbuildings that were quite artistic and beautiful and really classy-looking. And Ralph charges out. And uh, I had just called Jeff, uh, Jerry Thomas. Do you know who Jerry Thomas is? No. Jerry Thomas is not much of a, a factor anymore in the D.B. Cooper case, but once upon a time... Jerry Thomas was one of the major figures in the D.B. Cooper investigation. He was Ralph Himmelsbach's Ralph Himmelsbach, heavy lifter, go-to guy. And they are very close. Jerry, Jerry's my age. He's 65, thereabouts, Vietnam vet. Um, Ralph is 90-something. And uh, if Ralph is still alive, he's in very fragile health. Um, Jerry... Um, has publicly stated that he considers Ralph Himmelsbach a second father. That's how close they were. And Ralph confirms that. And so what's, you know, I understand you're very close to Jerry. And he says, oh, yeah. And um, so as Ralph is charging towards me, and I had just talked with Jerry, and I said, you know, if I show up on Ralph's doorstep unannounced, is, is he going to be cool? I says, oh, yeah, he's a nice guy. So I said, okay, Jerry, if you're telling me it's okay, I'm going. I'm going in because when I call Ralph, he doesn't answer the phone, you know. So in the last time I actually spoke with him, he says he doesn't want to have an interview. He's not going to grant me an interview unless I pay him 600 bucks. So, and I don't have 600 bucks. Ralph said that? Yeah. 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 So, hmm. well, he didn't mention the dollar figure. He says, you know, he says, you know, I charge for interviews. And I later found out that from other journalists that he gets $600 for a print interview and, and 2100 for a video interview. And he, he told me a lot about it. He says, because I'm abused. He says, I'm taken advantage of by, by you guys. You know, you, you, you want me to show up and you're going to stick a video camera in my face and I got to wait two hours until you get the lights fixed up right and then there's a problem with the microphones and, you know, that's all my time and I just wait around with you guys and it's like the hell with you, you know, you, you know. So... If you want, if you want my time, if you want my story, pay me. Like everything else, it's America, you know. You want to, you want to play, you got to pay, you know that kind of thing. So, I said, you know, Ralph, I don't have any money. I could take you out to lunch. I'll take you and your wife out to lunch. She's a really great lady. Um, and he says, no thanks. Anyway, so as Ralph was charging towards me out of his beautiful castle, I said, Hey, Ralph, Jerry Thomas says. Uh, It'd be okay if I just show up. You know, I'm Bruce from the Mountain News. Can I talk to you for a few minutes? Jerry? You know Jerry? You're friends with Jerry? I go, well, we're not a friends exactly, but, you know, well, come on in. <laughs> hey, Doris, this is a friend of Jerry's. You know, it's like, oh, so I was like one of the family. You know, oh, we're just making dinner. Have a seat. You know, <laughs> you want some coffee? How about a cup of tea? Like, no, I'm good. You know, you know. So, <laughs> so I'm I'm putting the laundry in. I'll be right back. Let me I'm running from the washing machine to dry. I'll be right back. Let me change the load. <laughs> he walks out. He goes right. He said, "I said, what do you want to talk about?" I said, "Well, Cooper, of course." He said, oh, "Shoot, go ahead." <laughs> so, there was a side of Ralph that is very much the Southern gentleman, and he's very much he treated me. He very much looked, and the environment and everything looked like he was like a, a Moorish. A more chic, you know, there was a real Arabic, uh, Spanish, the Alhambra. That's what I kept thinking of 
Grenada and the Alhambra and the Moorish occupation of Spain and the Iberian Peninsula in the 1200s and you know Salaladin you know and all the, you know and El Cid and you know all this kind of stuff um, swords are hanging over the mantelpiece they don't they don't have muskets it's like silver swords and lances and things like that very you know this is FBI agent <laughs> you know he's a field agent <laughs> so. Um, so that's Ralph and Jerry. What was I talking about before that? Uh, Tina's sexual assault. Oh, the sec. Yeah, so Jerry. So Ralph, I think, you know, reading between the lines, reinforced that notion that maybe something happened in those mystery forty-five minutes. But why would Tina say he was a nice guy? Why? Why does Tina say anything? Did she actually ever say that? Were those words written? Was was she attributed? Were those words attributed to her? Tina never talked to me. I don't know anybody that she's talked to directly. I know people who say they talk to her. I can't confirm it. The question is, how far down that rabbit hole do you want to go? <laughs> Here's a scenario. Tina was a good girl, still is. She went to a Lutheran, she went to a, a, a high school, a boarding school that was religious. It wasn't run by the Catholics, I was surprised. Even though they were nuns, I was astonished to learn that the Lacanau School for Girls was run by the Lutherans. And again, you can't confirm anything in the D.B. Cooper story. Tina's family can't confer to me, was Tina Catholic or is she Lutheran? Or both, you know? Did she switch? She do both? What? What's? What's? She? You know? She went to a, a nunnery. She's in a convent. She's a nun, a Catholic nun. She's also going with the Lutherans, and then she was hospitalized in a Lutheran healthcare facility. What's? What's? Tell me. Tell me about this. You know? And nobody would. It's like, geez, you're all crazy. You know? So. Um. Do you think any of the airline personnel were, were in on it? No. I don't think they were in on it. I think something much more nefarious happened. At the very least, the question is, so what did happen? At the very least, Tina was compelled to lie. From her point of view, you have to remember, very moral, very ethical woman. Tina and Florence used to room together. And Florence told Galen she couldn't stand Tina at times because she's just started Bible belting. She was Bible this, Bible that, Jesus, Jesus, all the time, like in the motel rooms. And it's like, shut up, Tina, will you? You know, I need a drink, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so right off the bat, Northwest Orient is giving Tina a script to read, all right? And it is plausible to assume that she didn't like it why can't I just say what happened? I want to just say what I said. I don't want to say what you want me to say. Well, she continued to work for the airline for years yes. and years afterwards. That's unknown. It all depends who you talk to. I thought it was like 12 or 15 years after that, and she did uh, flights to the Orient. Well, that's what she that. told. That's what a journalist for the Eugene Weekly what Paul Nivell wrote in 2012 for the Eugene Weekly, and I talked to Paul, and he seems like a legitimate guy. And I, I think 
Tina or somebody impersonating Tina sat down with Paul and gave the first interview, public interview, with a journalist in over 30 years, and I think it's a full bullshit story. Somebody impersonating Tina, that would be wild. It would be wild. How far down this rabbit hole do you want to go? And how many rabbits are down there with you? And maybe some other creatures. Creatures of the night. Creatures of the underground. Something happened. Let's talk about Tina for a little bit. What is known and generally verified is that Tina flew for Northwest Orient as a flight attendant for at least a year or two after the skyjacking. The YouTube interviews that she gave to CBS TV and others look like she's a competent, articulate, caring, compassionate flight attendant who was uncomfortable in front of the camera and gave a good interview. But when did she stop flying for Northwest Orient? It's unknown. Or did she stop? It's unknown. But what is known is that she got married somewhere around 1975 to a guy from Northwest Orient who was out of the Chicago office. They, Tina leaves Minneapolis and they move to the Bay Area and live as a married couple for two years. And the marriage is over within two years. And... The husband, the ex-husband, is a strange guy. He refused to talk to me. He had an extensive interview with Galen. Most of what I know from Alan, so what is his last name? Larson, because Tina's, that's how Tina hides. By the way, this is, this is, con, this is confidential. Everybody knows Tina Mucklow, and that's how she hides. Everybody talks about Tina. And she hides in public view by using her married name that most people don't know. And her husband talked extensively with Galen and he also talked with Radicek. And Radicek told me about him. And Radicek was surprised to realize that Tina's ex-husband is basically a basket case and was surprised and shocked and disappointed to find out that Alan did not know where Tina was living when he called about 2007 or 2008. He wanted to get, Radicek wanted to get in touch. Radicek has a very strange relationship with Tina, very deep emotions. He wept on the uh, History Channel documentary. I saw that. That's the Bill Radicek I know. He, he told me he loves Tina. He says, not in a sexual way, but I really love that woman. He gave Tina a bottle of Chanel Number no. 5. I wrote about that in my book. Yep. He says, that woman knew how to wear perfume. <laughs> there, he has a super crush on Tina. A lot of people do. I do too. I have had dreams about Tina. Sending her chocolates and valentines and drinking red wine with her. Oh, mm -hmm. Tina... Tina, give me a call, please. <laughs> so, Tina gets married. Marriage breaks up. Tina leaves the Bay Area, moves to San Diego, lives with Jane and Lee Dormuth down there with her sister and brother-in-law. <clears throat> I've written about this. Maybe you've read this all and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, 
and I don't know if she's flying. There were no reports of her flying through the mid-70s. What we do know is that she's hospitalized in a long-term care facility in Gresham, Oregon by 1979. And she'd been there for a while. So it's believed she was at least hospitalized in 78. Why? We don't know. Lots of rumors that she had a nervous breakdown. What exactly is a nervous breakdown? Is it like PTSD? Who knows? She's in this healthcare facility when the money's found in Tina's bar just down the river, about 20 miles away. So everybody's going, oh, my God, is there any connection between Tina Bar and Tina in the bed? You know, she's in a hospital bed just up the river. You know, <laughs> you know. what's going on? Do you think there's any connection? I don't know. Again, how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? If you're a puppet master and had unlimited resources to do any kind of dirty tricks, why not this one? Why not? Worse is done. Just look at Homeland. Any episode of Homeland, you'll see a lot worse stuff done. So anyway. Speaking of Tina Barr, how do you think the, the money got there? Nobody knows. Um, and I don't know. But I can tell you that the known facts of the case that are known now, that the two money finds, the three bundles on the relatively near the surface of, of the sand, and the shards strewn over dozens of feet, three feet down, up and down the beach, suggest the dredge. Somehow the money was in the river, the dredge sucked it up, chewed it up, spit it up on the beach, it got smeared out, and some money was in bundles, some money was torn up. Go figure. But the bundles that were found, tightly compressed, sticking together. Rubber bands still intact. Rubber bands. All the edges are gone, like someone had trimmed them. Have you, have you read the theories on the trimming? Oh, yeah, I've read a lot. Oh, of you, okay. Fast. That's a fast. Talk about out of the box. Now, Georgia, of course, just excoriated that guy. I forget his name. But... Um, that is fascinating stuff. And Georgia needs his hand slapped to shut up when somebody comes in with a really original idea because you can't shoot that stuff down right out of the chute. you got to say, that's weird, and think about it for a bit. And let the guy keep talking and thinking and cogitating because and, it might be on to something. Who knows? Um, and I would not be... So I'm 50-50 on the dredge. I think it's easily possible that something very bizarre and weird happened also. I like Robert 99's theory that the plane was actually flying much further west in the flight path and that Cooper jumped out over the river and crash landed at Tina Bar. And so not only is the money at Tina Bar. Well, Bradley Collins says he landed at Tina Bar also. Oh, is that what Bradley's saying now? Yeah. Okay. He's, he's a latecomer to the party. <laughs> okay. Well, good for, good for Bradley. So Tina is in the convent by 1980 and probably 1979 spring of 1970 she shows up in the spring that's the nuns pretty much confirmed that i'm not quite sure whether it's 1979 1980 i think it's 79 because one of the nuns told me she was there for 12 years and left in the early 90s probably 1991 so that's the time frame that seems to ring to me and then she leaves she disappears again 
It's believed that she stayed in the area, went and got a college degree, and then started working in social services, probably in mental health, and and um, and is there to this day. I, it's the only she's the only woman who slammed the door in my face three times. Usually, one once will do it. Once usually once once you once in my experience once usually does it, but with Tina she had to go two more times. Okay, so I was mad. I was pissed. I was angry. It's like Tina, what is your problem? You know, I'm not a bad guy. I introduced myself to you. I didn't stick a camera in your face. I didn't stick a microphone in your face. I'm just a guy on a Sunday afternoon showing up saying, hey, can I sit down and talk with you a little bit about... I didn't even say D.B. Cooper. I said, I just want to talk about Flight 305. You know, I tried to use code words, you know. You need to leave now. <laughs> That's me and Tina. So I haven't sent her chocolates or valentines because I don't want to get an arrest warrant <laughs> in the mail, <laughs> you know, or order of protection. Oh, that'd be fun. Well, speaking of arrest warrant, yeah. um, let's talk about the Cooper Vortex for a second. Okay. Robert was doing a presentation at the Auburn Theater. Correct. And then somebody called in like a bomb threat or... That's what he says. Something will happen. Yes. And so he said he didn't. I talked to him about this yesterday. <laughs> okay. That uh, he wasn't sure, but he knew that one other uh, Cooper aficionado in the area was coming who he hadn't met, which was Bruce Smith. So he told them, hey, maybe it's this guy. Right. Um, That's what he told me. And he gave him my picture. How did he have your picture? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a public figure. Maybe from your website or something? Possibly. The book. Who knows? And Robert's so, very skilled at the internet. He 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 can... Re Robert's a real good researcher, a really good internet researcher. Or Greg, the techie guy that he keeps talking about, Greg helps him out. Either way, Robert is very productive digitally and cyber. He has cyber connections. He's very good on that. What he does with the information? No, that's a whole can of worms. And we could talk a lot about what I think about Robert Blevins. But anyway... Um, I and I've had a lot of discussions with Robert. I've I've tried to straighten him out, but that boy is that boy is destined to go his own way. So what happened when you showed up at the theater? I never showed up. Oh really? No. I was gonna get arrested if I did. How did you hear that? He told me. He told me he alerted the police and I was gonna be arrested as soon as I crossed over the urban city line. Hmm. Well I guess that's a good reason to not go. That's one reason. It's, it's also one reason to go. That's see, that's that's the bottom line in the in the deeper in the Cooper vortex when people get a little little adversarial. It's like you want to sue me? Go ahead. My attorneys are going to depose you. You're going to have to you're going to have to put your statements down on paper, and your whole life is going to be open to us. Your financials, please. You're going to sue me for money? Well, I'm counter suing. How much money you got in the bank? Let's talk turkey, big boy. You know, has someone threatened to see you before? Yeah, Joe. Joe and Robert. You know, it's, it's it's endless lawsuits, and you know, you published. If you say this, if you published, if you put this in the book, I'm going to sue you. You know, 
And then they call me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel well. I got a bad doctor's report. Oh, my God. My days are numbered and I haven't finished. I haven't proven that Dwayne is D.B. Cooper. <laughs> what can I tell you, Joe? Uh, so this, the last story has to do with uh, a piece that I wrote about Rackstraw and Thomas Colbert. We haven't even talked about Thomas Colbert. And uh, so I wrote a whole big piece because Colbert has got the Hollywood gravy train rolling big time. He's very connected to the media people in Hollywood. And he's really pushing this whole Rackstraw as a suspect kind of thing as D.B. Cooper. How do you feel about Rackstraw as D.B. Cooper? He's not, he's not Cooper. He's an interesting guy. Very interesting the guy. Book, the book Last Outlaw, fantastic book. And it's really, it's really an education to me to see how my Mountain News writing is used by other authors in their books. And yes, I'm accredited, thank God. But you are. I saw that. I looked through the yeah. special thanks and everything. Yeah. Looking for names I know. I'm like, oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, at any rate, um, I, I thought Colbert cherry picked information from me well almost everyone has to cherry pick information if they have a suspect then they'll true true these theories these facts support my theory and these ones don't so i'll just ignore those yeah and colbert is more dangerous than robert blevins and colbert colbert is a mixed bag he's a real mixed bag um I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him, but I do respect his contributions uh, to the case and to the investigation. He is primarily responsible for putting thousands of FBI documents in our hands. And it's his freedom of information request. He got turned down by the FBI. The FBI told him to fuck off um, and his attorneys. He's got some high-powered Washington, D.C. attorneys. And the FBI just told him to all buzz off. Well, he's brought a lot of attention to the case He has. He has. And he's also brought up a lot of support through other people who uh, are more successful with the FBI and their Freedom of Information Act. All of the material, it's my understanding that all the material that Colbert has provided to guys like me and Dave Brown and Shudder and Georgia and the whole D.B. Cooper forum and, and all of that, yada, 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 comes from a third source, academic sources, who have sued the FBI for documentation. So the FBI is giving 302s, which is the primary documentation that they have, the field reports. The 302 is a field report. So it's going from the FBI to academia, back-channeled back to Colbert in Hollywood, from Colbert to the FBI, D.B. Cooper form and Dave Shutter. So it's a bing-bonga-boom kind of thing. And then I can get the stuff through Dave. Colbert won't respond to me. Colbert, Colbert and I have this adversarial relationship at this point because all of his canard and all of his craziness and his really what I consider to be inappropriate speculations... Um, I just call him on it. And he's been quite nasty at times. Um, Because early on, he was talking about plant, 
the money was planted at, at Tina Bar. Mm -hmm. And I said, wait a second here, Tommy. You know, you can't talk about a plant at Tina Bar without explaining how the money shards got buried three feet down. But they dig up dig up the beach, bury the money, and then cover it back up and put three bundles on top? What? You know, somebody came in with a backhoe one night? Come on. You know. And he was very dismissive. He says, well, I'll let you and Georgia play in the sand on that one. <laughs> and that's and to me, that's Tom Colbert. That's the essence of Tom Colbert. Smart ass. A smart ass who knows that most of the time that he's going to get away with murder. You know, that he, he just, he's a guy that doesn't think that his shit doesn't stink. And he gets away with it. And he's been successful. And he's made a career and he's turned on some good TV. You know? But my understanding is, is that he's not a real good researcher. What he is is an executive. He, he outsources everything. Everybody else does the heavy lifting for Tom Colbert. And he just shows up and make, puts everybody in the headlines, you know. And he gets the headlines. Tom Colbert is, very, is a very successful marketer. Oh, yeah. I've talked to people who were working for someone who was working for Tom. Mm-hmm. So Are we makes... talking Jim Forbes? No, I was actually talking uh, Nicholas Broughton. Ah, Nicky. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I did. I did Nick has told me. I, I don't know Nick really well because I had an adversary. Nicky was obnoxious early on. He's, he's grown up a lot in the last year. And he told me, he fessed up that he was doing some backroom stuff with Colbert and trying to get on the boat, you know, the poverty sucks boat or something like that. <laughs> Working in the marinas. I, I don't know what it was. It was some, I was like, oh my God, you two deserve each other. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know. But Jim Forbes is the, Forbes is the guy who did most of Colbert's heavy lifting. And Forbes is in the, the History Channel documentary and made, and did the direct confrontation with the film crew at the marina with, right. with uh, Rackstra. Yeah, that's, that's Forbes. Forbes is a nice guy. Really a good guy. Good journalist. Good journalist, long-time journalist too. So, well, let me ask you a, a few quick questions because I got to okay. hit the road. Okay, okay. Um, do you have a favorite suspect of the well-known ones? No, it doesn't have to be because you think it's that guy. No, just because they're interesting. No, no. I I like every suspect for other for other reasons. I think it's great. I think Barb Dayton is great. Barb Dayton is great. I think the foremans are great, and I think the love affair between the foremans and Barb Dayton is great. The fact that the transgender community, the 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 foremans are supposed to be the honorees at some LBGTQE Pride Day march in Seattle for their book on Barb. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, it is. That now that you, now that would make a great doc, opening to a documentary on Duke Cooper, you know. And, uh, you know, and the Barb Dayton story is fantastic. And, and I told Pat this. I said, Pat, I got to tell you, I think you've got half, a great, half of a great book written. I don't think Barb is D.B. Cooper, but the fact that you think she is is part of Barb's story. And you should write about the what if. What if she's not D.B. Cooper? 
and told you that she was, why would she do that and everything else in her life? And why did she drop you and Ron like hot potatoes at the end of her life? And why did she go off to the desert and live by herself? And why, how come the cops called you because you were the only name in, that they found in the entire apartment? That's a real good story. It's a great story. It's a great story. It is interesting, too. Why would why have so many people claimed to be D.B. Cooper? Oh. I mean, we could, we could probably talk about that for hours. But uh, let me ask you. I was shocked when Galen told me he thought it was 922 people a number of years ago. I was shocked. Now I think that number's low. I think it's low. I think. You think it's low, too? Yeah. I think the number of people who think they're D.B. Cooper or tell people they're D.B. Cooper is probably in the thousands because it's incredible. And, and how many veiled confessions are out there? I, I keep hearing. And in fact, I put a joke up at the D.B. Cooper forum the other day. You know, it's like, so how many suspects are we up to like this month? You know? My father was DB. My uncle was, DB, you know, uh, it's just one after the other. Oh, and there's always this excitement of this yeah. person discovered this new suspect. And mm -hmm. yeah, so I think I think that's interesting. The other person that I'm that I'm interested in, I very much enjoyed learning about, was Robert Rackstra, and again, and he's still alive. He's still alive, and again, I think Colbert missed the boat. If he could just take his mind off of proving that this guy's D.B. Cooper and his addiction to that glory. And this is, let me tell the Robert Rackstraw story. This is a snapshot of America. These are the guys who went to Vietnam. These are the guys who come back. He killed his stepfather. He got the sheriff's department in Clackamas County, whatever, like, to cover up for him. Dig into that. Oh yeah, it's a, that, it's a wild story. That is the whole a thing. great, great story. This is how the world really is. It's fascinating. Let me ask you one final question. Uh, one final. Will this be solved? Yes. There's no question in my mind. The only question I have is when and who. Is there any chance D.B. Cooper is alive? Yes. He's old. <laughs> he is old. I hope that he has a good medical plan. He may be in assisted living. person who solves this might be a nurse's aide. <laughs> that would be great. Could be. In some kind of uh, satellite VA clinic down in Pensacola, you know, wherever the a lot of vets just go south with the sun, you know, they just seem to gravitate going south. And I, it's to me, it's very plausible. Not only D, having DB Cooper, I, and I make this case in the book, but I think it's a very real dynamic about how come, how come, how did DB Cooper keep quiet about this? If if he was a commando. And, you know, surely he told somebody or somebody knew, things like that. And I, and I, and only, only a few people, and I've had this conversation with a couple people. It's like, there are enclaves, there are tribes, there are communities in our society that are not connected to anybody else. 
in the same way that Tina lived in a cloistered convent. You know, there are people who just don't interact with the world. And one guy was telling me, do you think D.B. Cooper was a gypsy? <laughs> I said, wow, what an interesting idea, okay? Lived outside the mainstream. But I think a lot of vets, and I think certainly think a lot of spies and CIA guys and special ops and Delta Force and those kinds of guys. There's a great movie on Netflix um, about a band of legion of brothers. Have you seen it? No, I'll check it out. Definitely check it out. It's a documentary on two ranger teams, Team 595 and 574. And they went in and fought with the Northern Alliance in 2002 in Afghanistan. 595 was in the northern and 574 was in the south. And the documentary, it's not very well made, but the information is very important about how warriors, the warrior spirit, and the warrior experience bonds men and their families and their wives. And if you can extrapolate from that documentary and the experiences of 595 and 574, that if Cooper was in that kind of environment, was in that kind of band of brothers, lived in those communities, married a woman like those wives who are married to these guys, to these warriors, you can see, yeah, he told all of his buddies. Everybody knew. All the wives knew. But they didn't tell anybody else. They just didn't mix. Yeah, they might go see their mothers back in Jersey for Christmas or something like that. But they never talk about an operation. All right, Bruce. Well, All right. thank you, Darren. Thank you. Is there anything you want to plug or promote? Yeah, buy my book. It's been wonderful talking to you. I'm the author. Everybody listening, if you're still here five hours later or whatever this is, uh, I'm the author of D.B. Cooper and the FBI, a case study of America's only unsolved skyjacking. It's available at Amazon. Or if you want a signed copy, send me 25 bucks, put a check in the mail, whatever, give me a call, email. Best way to get a hold of me is email. I'm happy to, to chat with anybody. It's Bruce Smith at RainierConnect.com. And uh, if you can't write it down fast enough, if you forget it or lose a piece of paper, just co contact Darren. and I, I can I, put I a link in the show right, notes Right, I give also. you permission to put all my contact information. Anybody wants to talk to me, anyone, Cooper or whatever like that, I'm, I'm good to go, you know. And if you're a jerk, you know, I know what to do with you. So don't worry. <laughs> well, I can testify that you're uh, willing to respond to people who just email you out of the blue. Yeah, so. and everybody, a lot of people do, you know. It's, it, it, there's a lot of you young guys coming up, you know. I got a taste. An action. <laughs> Good. Go for it. Let's go. Let's keep. See, one of you guys is going to solve this case. You know, is this case going to be? Safe? Sure. You know, between remote viewing and all the young blood coming in, we're good. You know, I kept hoping that we were going to get a deathbed confession. I'm not hoping for that anymore. Well, we already have like 60. 60 deathbed confessions? Yeah. Is it that many? <laughs> Probably. I just made that number up. But yeah. Seems like uh, it. So. All right, Bruce. Well, I really appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. All right, thank Until you. Until next time, stay in touch. 
I hope you enjoyed the conversation with my friend Bruce Smith as much as I did. Make sure you pick up a copy of his book, D.B. Cooper and the FBI, A Case Study of America's Only Unsolved Skyjacking. Also be sure to check out his website, The Mountain News, at themountainnewswa.net. He updates it often. There's a lot of really good articles on D.B. Cooper there, as well as a lot of really good D.B. Cooper discussion. Thank you to Bruce Smith for coming on the show, and thank you to Russell Colbert for making this happen. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.